I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Will Vanderveer and Keith Kurlander. Will and Keith are co-founders of the Integrative Psychiatry Institute, which teaches mental health providers how to recognize and resolve an expanded spectrum of root causes of mental illness, and also the Integrative Psychiatry Centers, which provide integrative psychiatry and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for complex mental health challenges. Together, they are the hosts of the Higher Practice Podcast. Will is a psychiatrist, speaker, researcher, and author. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Integrative Medicine and has been a team member on several studies sponsored by MAPS investigating MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for chronic treatment-resistant PTSD. Keith graduated from Naropa University in 2005 with a master's degree in transpersonal counseling psychology. And he has practiced integrative psychotherapy and coaching with individuals, couples, and groups for over 15 years. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Thanks, Sharon. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're, we're excited to get uh, into the conversation with you, Sharon. Well, thank you, really. Um, this is such a poignant time. You know, I am teaching online, and I'm reading the chats, and uh, as people are 
you know, writing in their life experience and, and it's so tough. And, uh, it's important, I think, to turn to many bodies of knowledge, you know, to feel what some options might be for seeking help or for offering help and, and so on. So I wanted to understand more about integrative psychiatry and find out how you both came to specialize in it. Sure. I'll, I'll start us off. This is Keith. Um, so I'll first say, you know, Will and I have known each other now for close to 15 years, I think. Um, we're very close friends and been very close colleagues. And my road into integrative psychiatry uh, and the companies we're both involved in is very different than Will's. Uh, so I'll, I'll just say a little bit about me. So I, by training, is I'm a psychotherapist. And my road to integrative psychiatry was really as a patient. I'm not, I won't tell the long detailed story here, but I dealt with pretty severe mental illness for what turned out to be most of my life, which I didn't realize until I was a young adult. Uh, and uh, a lot of serious depression, bipolar states, and um, severe ADD, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And that catapulted me on a, on a journey, a spiritual journey in my 20s that brought me to more of the Eastern traditions, meditation, yoga. Uh, and then brought me to wanting to help people as a psychotherapist. And then through my own professional and personal pursuit, realized that there's actually a model out there for healing that brings everything together in the space of, the, of mental health, where there are you know, people that identify with mental health struggles. Uh, there's, there's a modality out there that's we're, you know, we're kind of defining more right now through this institute and our center called integrative psychiatry. And it's, it's a pretty amazing model of healing um, and human potential, really. It's a human potential model. Um, and I think I'll leave it at that for the moment. I won't say too much more about what it is. Maybe, Will, you want to say a little bit more about your path and sure. mm -hmm. want to get into details there. No, it sounds great. Yeah, I would... So as a psychiatrist, I um, learned pretty quickly after I finished my training that the medications and the psychotherapy that I learned about in my training and was taught to provide people um, helped some people, but it left too many people in deep suffering. And within a couple of years after graduating residency, I was in despair about the limitations and the tools that I had learned. And um, at first, I went to meditation and I started teaching uh, my patients how to meditate and be with their disturbances. And that did help um, quite a bit. Uh, but then I realized that there were still too many people suffering um, beyond just medication and therapy and meditation. So um, over the years, kind of scoured the continuing education space for how to learn about other ways to help people get well. And that really led into looking at the gut-brain connection and the microbiome and the role of inflammation and uh, learning how to work with trauma in a 
somatic psychotherapy approach. And over the years, uh, developed a kind of a, a broad range of ways to evaluate the problems people face that uh, became the basis of what we teach in the Institute. Fantastic. And actually, I want to take uh, what might seem like a little detour into that word despair. Sure. That I like detours. <laughs> because um, as I think we talked about when uh, I was I was talking to you on your podcast, the um, uh, a lot of the work I've been doing in the last several years has been with what we call caregivers. People, I, I always think there needs to be a better word, but people who in many ways in their personal life and their professional life are on the front lines of suffering, trying to make a difference, trying to help people, whether it's a family or whatever. Um, and it's tough. That itself, you know, uh, is a, is a professional stance that's leading to a lot of trauma and vicarious trauma. And there's just the, I think the nature of, trying to be of service anyway, where you don't necessarily see immediate results. You don't necessarily get exactly the results that you wanted. And yet uh, your heart is telling you, you have to keep, you have to keep trying. And so uh, whenever I hear a caregiver, uh, which I'm now defining you as use the word like despair, I just want to ask, well, what did you do for coming back to balance? Because this is a very crucial question in our time. Mm. Thanks for asking that, Sharon. Um, the first thing I did was I quit psychiatry mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I followed my meditation teacher to a tiny town in Colorado called Crestone. And I started, um, a kind of retreat like existence where I was practicing meditation for several hours a day. Uh, meditation was one of the only, uh, resources I had at the time for my healing process. And it remains really important to me today. Uh, I've, I've kind of filled it out a little bit since mm -hmm, then, but mm -hmm. it took me a while to um, sit with myself and begin to open my mind to the perspective that it wasn't psychiatry that was wrong. It was just that psychiatry was very limited in the scope of what it taught me in as a healer. So um, that was, that was the first thing I did. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I would love to hear, you know, from both of you. And also, obviously it's a huge question in our time. And so how are you counseling people who are maybe not ready to quit or <laughs> move right. to Crestone, you know, where I've been. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I'm so glad Sharon, you're bringing up the, um, the experience of despair both in, in the care providers and also just in the human experience and that's very heightened in a lot of people right now, mm -hmm. the experience of despair and existential angst. Um, I think that's one thing, I'm not sure what you've seen in your work, Sharon, but something I've seen is that I think there's um, the bittersweetness of despair because despair definitely you know, in one level, I, I categorize despair in my brain as sort of unnecessary suffering. And it, it's like, we could do better sort of like uh, perspective. And another way, 
what I've seen in myself and a lot of the community I'm involved with, with care providers is that despair seems to light a fire of wanting to really um, help in some way around suffering. Um, it doesn't do that for everyone, but I, I see that despair also is something that can turn into something through sort of alchemy, spiritual alchemy, it can turn into something that becomes purpose in the world mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, and a way to really impact the world in a significant way. So I think we're at a very interesting moment in history right now where there is increased despair and angst. But I also believe that that alchemy can turn to increased purpose in the world and influence and, and change. That's so interesting. And so when uh, a caregiver comes to you, um, I mean, obviously you're, you're assessing the whole, the whole person, you know, uh, as you described the process of, of integrative psychiatry, but uh, particularly around that, that kind of burnout of trying to be of service, um, the exhaustion or the depletion or the sense of meaninglessness that sometimes comes when one is just too tired, you know? Um, is that a place where you, uh, how do you help somebody like that or, or try to help somebody like that? Right. Well, we start from the bottom up. Um, I would say we, we want to take a look at the entire ecosystem of the person in front of us, uh, including their relationships with their loved ones, with their friends and their community and, you know, their place in the world. Um, and then we're also going to look at their um, habits. We're going to look at their nutrition. We're going to look at their sleep. Uh, we're going to start with the basics. One of the things that I see a lot in distressed caregivers is sleep disturbance. So that's a, that's a really uh, undermining problem that people face. And it's also a lever that can have a huge impact if we can get a hold of that and, and work with sleep. Um, so, but on, on the psychological or spiritual level with despair, I think we also have to look at what are the assumptions about how the universe works. Um, what are our assumptions about our responsibility for um, guaranteeing uh, positive outcomes for the people we work with to try to alleviate their suffering? You know, often, oftentimes caregivers, more often than not in my experience, and I'm speaking from personal experience as well, um, often come from backgrounds where they... Uh, performed caregiving roles as children in the family system. And so if, if those unconscious patterns are operating, they can really uh, undermine a person's health. Yeah, I could fill in um, mm -hmm. a few more gaps here. Um, so I, I think everything Will said is kind of my perspective and kind of a kind of blowing out a little of what Will said, because I tend to focus a lot on psychology um, and, you know, mostly refer to other people for 
the other components of the wheel we're all speaking to. To me, when a caregiver is, you know, quote unquote, burned out or exhausted or depleted, despair, to me, that typically means that in some way they're not acting in accordance with to what's most important to them. You know, their value structure in some way is shifted in their head and their behaviors aren't, they're not spending enough time on behaviors that are most important to them. Um, because when we when we spend time on behaviors to that we believe will give us what's most important to us in our life, and a lot of the time in the day is spent on those behaviors, we're autom- we're automatically inspired because we start getting more of what we want in our life. When we start spending time on behaviors that lead to things that are less important to us then all of a sudden the exchange doesn't feel accurate in ourselves because we're not actually getting the thing that most fulfills us. So I would usually look at the caregiver who's saying I'm burned out and depleted or in despair and say, let's really look at your behaviors and the way you're, you're you know, using your energy throughout the day. And are you actually working toward the thing you most want throughout the day? Um, Because typically when we work through the thing we most want, um, we tend to actually feel very energized because we're getting the thing we want. Um, So that's just an extra piece I would throw in around values. Um, To me, burnout typically is we're limited in some way in the way we're working. And it's not actually the way we want to be working. That's typically my experience, especially with caregivers. There's also uh, the very interesting question of self-compassion, and I'm wondering uh, about that, you know, just in general, because um, to, first of all, not have completely unrealistic perfectionistic standards and to have some resiliency to be able to begin again, uh, things like that, to um, have an ability to change directions or have some flexibility in your perception day to day and with everything that we need to do, uh, we fall down a lot and we blow it and, you know, conditions now are very hard, which I want to talk to you about as well. And and um, people are finding they're maybe reacting uh, in a harsher way than they might have like two months ago, three months ago, four months ago, whatever it might be. And so um, for me, you know, my perspective is that the hidden ingredient in all of that and being able to kind of make a mistake, lessons learned, go on with some greater determination or have to start over with something or, or do a course correction or, or whatever it might be, the basis of that is really self-compassion. Yeah, I'm wondering, Sharon, because um, you're one of the best people to ask this just in you know, where have you really spent your time um, in terms of helping people? Like, what would you say are the ingredients of self-compassion in terms of what allows someone to be able to exercise self-compassion and where do people get kind of stuck in maybe self-aggression? Well, I'd go back to um, Kristen Neff's, you know, basic formula for describing self-compassion, which I think is is great. Um, and it involves mindfulness, first of all, seeing what you're feeling, that something is going on and 
you're adding, you know, a tremendous amount of shame to the fact that your mind wandered in meditation or you, uh, you didn't say something quite in as elegant a way as you had hoped or whatever it is. Um, and then feel what that shame is like. You know, what does it feel like? And um, as one uh, psychologist said to me once, the brain filled with shame cannot learn. You know, and so we pay attention to what that feels like. And if if it feels like it's closed off and shuttered and, you know, isolating, then notice that and, and realize that's not helpful. So it's mindfulness to understand sort of the whole uh, feeling tone of everything we usually lay on ourselves and, and what the alternative feels like. Um, some of it is, it's almost like they do role playing, you know, like, Imagine you have a message to deliver to your very best friend who's sitting in the chair next to you. Do you say it the way you say it to yourself? If it were you, no. How would you, like, you know, so. Um, and then part of it, which I think is is very crucial for me and my, my thinking is part of self-compassion is a sense of, um, it's this is like human behavior. This is part of being a human being. We make mistakes, we falter. We say the wrong thing, whatever it might be. So it, it's realizing, in a way, the universality of our vulnerability and not feeling it's just me, um, which which seems really crucial. I was doing a program with Parker Palmer, and uh, at the end of it, he invited everyone to turn up, turn on their microphones, and say to one another, "Welcome to the human race." You know, so. It's a little bit about that. And then, and so the, the ingredient is kindness. And that's what makes for self compassion. It's not like laziness, like some people think. Right. Definitely not laziness. Um, you know, I, I would just uh, thank Sharon for that summary. It's really helpful. And it takes me back to the moment of despair that I had as a young psychiatrist when I quit psychiatry for a while. And I think it was my mindfulness practice that actually opened up enough self-compassion for me to take a pause and reassess what am I actually doing here? And what I learned in the time that I took off was that I was uh, in despair because I was so frustrated with the merry-go-round of changing medications with people and not seeing the results. And I needed to exercise the self-compassion to reorient, like you said, and um, take that risk of realignment into what Keith was saying is kind of stepping into what was more aligned in my values, which was going out and learning how to add more tools to my toolkit as a practitioner. And once I shifted into learning mode, and I think a lot of healers are kind of lifelong learners and can probably relate to this, is I just was on fire. And it really shifted into more inspiration. Um, and that's been fairly consistent over time. Um, that the, the mission to improve mental health care uh, is a sustaining kind of uh, fire under me. Yeah, I might add to that. Um, my In my career, I never felt burned out. Um, 
somehow I got that part right. Um, but in my personal life, in my mind, I very much was in an inner war and torture for a lot of my adulthood. And so self-compassion for me was a huge journey. And really, um, some of the things that I learned around that journey, around when you're really suffering and struggling and what does self-compassion look like? I One, one of my takeaways was it, it kind of felt like a prostration to myself, like inside, just kind of bowing down and ask, like basically saying mercy and just saying like, I'm yielding here. And um, sort of that inner relationship of just, um, you know, I think we use a lot of words for this, this kind of letting go, um, a softening, um, kind of a bowing down, a yielding. I think that was a major part of my healing. But then I think the second half of the healing was also knowing when to get back up out of the prostration and, and be like, I'm also taking a stand for change and growth and uh, taking a stand for bringing, you know, as we say, right effort to this situation um, and trying to love myself along the way. So it's, it's definitely, a, I think, a major part is self-compassion um, and not to get absorbed in self-compassion at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fabulous. So how are you reaching people these days? Is it all online? Well, Will and I mostly right now, mo our, our work mostly is we run an institute, which is an educational institute. So that is almost entirely online now. Um, so, you know, people that take our programs in the Psychiatry Institute, we've we've shifted all of that to online. But our clinic, uh, where we do other work, we do a lot of different kinds of work. We, we do psychiatry there. We also use ketamine, uh, which is psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. That's still in person, um, mostly for the ketamine, because, you know, we we very much stand behind wanting to be there with the person if we're going to use that as a cathartic experience to try and help them move forward. Um, and then, you know, we both have some individual work here and there um, online. So yeah, mostly we're online these days. And how do you find that in terms of the feeling of connection and the help you're trying to impart? Yeah, it's, um, it's challenging to, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what actually happens with my oxytocin levels, but they probably, mm -hmm. don't, <laughs> they probably don't go up as much in a, uh, you know, horizontal two-dimensional uh, format working with people through uh, telemedicine. Um, it's definitely different. Um, I think that, you know, Keith and I are fortunate that we are kind of in a... Um, a pod together and we get to work together. Mm -hmm. uh, that helps a lot. I think it's so hard for people who are experiencing the kind of isolation that's actually extremely common right now to be able to feel that connection with each other. Um, yeah, it's sort of like a forced retreat. It's kind of like for, for now, like over a year where it's, and a lot of people don't have the tools for that. And on top of it, that's, you know, that lack of social engagement, um, in the physical space, it's, it's very challenging. 
uh, I think for a lot of people. So I would say it's definitely different. It's challenging. Uh, and it's opened new opportunities in different ways because people are reaching out in ways that they wouldn't before. Um, there's just, there's definitely opportunities there, but I think we are facing, you know, the, a big challenge around isolation. When you isolate nervous systems, um, which really operate in synergy, our nervous systems, they're, they do better if they're around healthy nervous systems. So when you start disconnecting people like this, uh, especially with people who don't have a ton of tools that have been practicing for this moment, it can get very overwhelming very fast. Yeah. And we're seeing that. We, yeah. we have, I mean, the type of patients that come to our clinic now and what we're hearing out there, things are way up right now. People are struggling because of this. And that's why I'm, you know, really love what you do, Sharon, and, you know, your podcast. It's like people really need to hear right now. Like, how do you work with yourself um, when we're disconnecting one of the most important things, which is social connection, uh, it's a it's a big it's a big challenge that we're facing right I now. And the levels of anxiety and depression are so high right now, and we're seeing people who were stable for years coming back and needing more services. Um, huge flood of new people who've never sought psychiatric services before coming in, and it's it's scary out there. I mean, it's a huge. Uh, pandemic of of mental health challenges right now, right? And we're probably have more to come. Um, and there is an anecdote um, to the social isolation, and the anecdote is that if people are able to really focus on what's important to them, even while they're socially isolated, and they can stay in their values, if they have the capacity to do that, and it depends on their situation. Um, it helps regulate the nervous system and it really helps, you know, keep people more relaxed because they still feel like their, their destiny is still coming to fruition the way that they want. Can you and give that, us an example? Like, cause sure. I would say like, let's say my deepest value is love, you know, to, to contribute some love into this world. And so tell me more. So I would say to you, Sharon, that, have more podcast episodes so that you can <laughs> share your love into the world. And the more you do that, you're, you're feeling the expression of that value. And the more you feel the expression of that value, the more it will ground you into living into the expression of what's important to you. And so there will still be anxiety maybe of the lack of social connection and things like that. Um, but it does anchor us into a purpose that extends into the future. Um, you know, for me, uh, so for me, like an example is that, uh, you know, I really kind of focused in on wanting to reach more people in the Institute. That's just what was very important to me. I also have a two-year-old daughter and a wife and my two-year-old went through COVID as a one to two. And so, I focused on her a lot, and so that was enriching to me. Um, there's a lot of ways um, that this could look for people. Uh, there are a lot of parents that have their children at home, and they're having to back off on their work. So in that case, you know, sometimes what I would work with with those people is 
finding out how high on their values is their family. Because if it's pretty on their values, we can help them link consciously how spending more time can be fulfilling. Sometimes we just don't have the conscious links enough uh, in our brain to recognize that we're actually already fulfilled during the day. We just didn't really link it enough to what's important to us. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's fascinating. It's because I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to think of somebody who really uh, does feel very alone, and uh, maybe the ordinary avenues available to them are not available to them because they're still not traveling around. And so, um, what would you suggest? I mean. I mean, I, I kind of think I, this is like the story I tell where I almost did it intuitively. Um, the last day that I was in New York City before I left to come up here to Massachusetts, uh, I was teaching somewhere and the system of this place was that the speaker sits in the audience until they get up on the stage after they've been introduced. And so I was in the audience and the woman I was sitting next to uh, was very anxious, very anxious about being there. Nobody quite knew anything, you know, too clearly. And um, and so I said, uh, well, you know, there are breathing techniques that I understand can really help settle your nervous system and have the parasympathetic nervous system be more pronounced than the, than the sympathetic nervous system. And, uh, you know, and it, really involves, um, as far as I understand, having your out-breath be longer than your in-breath. And she was not interested in that. So then I said, well, you know, there's loving-kindness meditation, which can uh, really help reinforce that sense of connection. She wasn't interested in that either. And I just looked at her and, and heard come out of my mouth, is there anyone you can help? And she lit up. And she got like completely radiant and said, oh, yeah, you know, I have this elderly neighbor and maybe I can slip a note under their door and see if I can do grocery shopping for them. And, um, but so often people, you know, perhaps might not know. So that may be part of the work initially is what really lights you up? You know, what do you care about? Absolutely. I mean, the, the relief, I think you're speaking to something really important, Sharon, in, in the relief that we feel immediately when we turn our attention to what, what can I do for other people uh, inside of the suffering that I'm feeling? Um, not, not as a bypass or a, you know, um, changing the channel kind of phenomenon, but balancing the, the despair, the suffering, the loneliness with what can I do for another person right now? And the shift that we feel in our system when we activate that kind of compassion. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm i reminded of a person I worked with probably a decade ago, pre-COVID, obviously, who had severe social anxiety. So already suffering, obviously, from severe isolation. Uh, and, you know, I was doing much of what you described. And it, it was helpful to a degree. You know, I was really trying to help him mindfully get into contact with his experience to regulate himself. And that was helpful. But I think the big shift in that case, when I, when I think back, this reminded me from your description, it reminded me the big shift started coming. His claim was what he wanted more than anything in life was connection. And 
I assumed that was true. But when I actually decided to challenge that, because I did, I, did, I did see he had an injury in learning how to connect with people. But when I challenged that and said, maybe there's something more important to you than just connecting with people. When we discovered what that was and I started helping him with that, and that was more around a purpose that wasn't just about relationships. Some people's purpose is relationship. Um, we started to move and he started to get regulated more, calmer, and eventually started to be able to connect more with people. Once we helped him more focus on like what's going to light him up um, versus kind of focusing on like, how do I get out of this dark hole uh, by trying to sort of, you know, build something into the hole. It was just like, wait, maybe we're poking around the wrong hole here for the moment. And we'll come back to that. So I think there's a lot going on here. You know, we've got a lot of people facing isolation right now in different ways. Uh, I think it's, it's a huge challenge. And there is an opportunity when we're presented with isolation. And obviously, Sharon, you've been a meditator for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. most of your life. So obviously you probably know there's so much about the opportunity that comes when we go inward and isolate in mm -hmm. ourselves to mm -hmm. see what's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so a lot of this, as I, as I listen, um, has uh, another theme, which is destigmatizing care for uh, mental suffering. You know that it, it's uh, it's going to be right now as as you've described. You know, uh, growing and growing and growing. That hopefully people will seek to have some help and and be able to um, find a way to have more fulfillment and connection and and love in their lives, even as they are going through something very difficult. And so. Uh, I think about that reluctance to seek treatment, to find help, or, or just the way uh, mental suffering is viewed in such a different light than physical suffering. And um, I just wonder if you could say something about that. You know, this is a really important topic for Will and I, because with the creation of modern psychiatric diagnoses, which is really what we talk about when we say mental health issues and mental suffering and destigmatization. As beneficial as that was in some ways uh, to sort of categorize and, and do some research and things like that, we also ended up creating culturally, culturally globally, a new framework for are you okay or are you not okay? Uh, and if you fit in to a mental health disorder, you're not okay. But in reality, we're all on a spectrum of moving between suffering and health all the time. And everyone, if we really wanted to look at their life, at some point in their life, will have a mental health disorder from that framework. At some point, we could find a mental health disorder at some point in their life. So to me, there was a big uh, drawback to that framework that now we have a lot of stigmatization around mental health. And um, 
we don't, the problem is it's, it doesn't encourage a human being to go get the support they need to thrive that framework. And so that's a part of our work is, is reframing the conversation around mental health, wellness, spiritual wellness, physical wellness. Um, we really need to move into a wellness model and a spectrum model. Um, you know, where are you on the spectrum right now? And what do you need if you want to thrive more? Um, and you're going, you know, don't get in the fantasy that you're not going to ever be hurting again because you are. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to all be moving through periods of inspiration and struggle inside ourselves. And for, for us, it's all about what's the way to get back into inspiration as fast as possible. Um, can you get better and better at that throughout your life? Uh, so I don't know, do you want to add anything there, Will? I mean, you've been steeped in this world for so long in medicine, right? About mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think you're pointing out something really important, Sharon, when you talk about stigmatization and the reluctance to get help. And I just want to highlight as a, physician and as a mental health provider that it's especially stigmatizing um, often for therapists and providers of care um, because I mean there's practical issues where you know your license to practice might be questioned if you're perceived to have a so-called you know major depressive disorder or a some kind of mental health diagnosis that's on the practical level, but you also have to deal with uh, crossing the line in your own mind from provider to patient. And so that's why Keith and I really feel like this model that um, includes everyone and the community, you know, the global community of suffering beings works a lot better than this kind of artificial separation between the provider and the patient, because we all need help and we all um, suffer. Well, thank you so much for for this conversation. I think uh, it was was enlightening, shall we say, and I think you helped a lot of people truly so I'm wondering if uh, one of you can lead us in a guided meditation to close out our conversation. Sure, I would love to do that. Take a deep, long inhale and a relaxed exhale. And reflect on this statement. At the end of your life, when you're reflecting back on it, what's the absolute most important contribution you would have wanted to make in your lifetime? At the end of your life, when you reflect back on it, What's the most important contribution you would have wanted to have made in this lifetime? And breathe that in 
and let it go in your exhale. And just notice is that contribution in the area of a family or spirituality or your health or your career and how you're serving or your lifestyle. And just breathe that in and take an exhale and let it go. And take another deep breath in and let it go. And reflect again on how your behaviors today are leading toward that contribution in your life. What behaviors did you do this morning that are on the way of you contributing in this huge way in your lifetime? What behaviors yesterday are on the way to this huge contribution in your lifetime? Taking another deep breath in and letting that go. And notice how your entire life is on the way to the contribution you want to give in this lifetime. Breathing that in. Exhaling and letting that go. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for leaving that, both of you for joining me today. To learn more about Will and Keith's work, you can tune into Higher Practice Podcast at www.psychiatryinstitute.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. A big thank you to everybody listening here. This has been the Meta Hour Podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.